think about a hospital visit, end of life issues, beginning of life issues. You're the ones on the front lines in those places. It is really important that you know what you're talking about. My concern is not so much whether or not you know the answer. If you don't know the answer, say, I'm not sure, let me ask somebody, I'll get back to you. My much bigger concern is giving someone the wrong answer. Because in this case of moral theology, souls are at stake. That is literally what we're dealing with here. And giving someone the wrong answer could potentially jeopardize someone's soul. So we don't play around when it comes to issues of moral theology and topics of that nature. Very important that we have a real good sense of what we're talking about when it comes to what is right and what is wrong. So, what are the fonts for the sources of Catholic moral theology? First and foremost, we start with scripture. Sacred scripture is the underlying foundation to everything we do as Catholics in theology. It is essential that we have a respect and a love for scripture. Now, not everything though in scripture is clear or is evident. I mean, Jesus never talks about abortion, euthanasia, immigration, health care. You know, none of that Jesus addresses personally. None of that. But he does give us principles to work with. So church teaching on abortion, euthanasia, health care, immigration, all of the high issues, all of that derives from principles that Jesus himself gives us in the Gospels. When the Lord talks about the least of these, in Last Judgments in Matthew 25, you can definitely include in that the immigrant, terminally ill, the unborn, the dying. So the Lord gives us principles, but they're not always so clear. So our second bond to moral theology is church tradition. The church's tradition, through our doctors, through her, her theologians, down through the centuries, fleshes out for us what Jesus is talking about in the scriptures. We're going to hear in the gospel this weekend when the Lord will say to the apostles that they are given the power to bind and loose. Just as Peter was given, they too this weekend the gospel will be given as well. Jesus says to the apostles, those who hear you, hear me. So they're given the authority and to preach in his name. Every bishop today is a successor of the apostles. So if they teach, if they teach definitively, we have to hold as Catholics, as disciples, first and foremost, as ordained ministers, even more so to defend what the church teaches in light of a culture which is totally opposed to much of what the church teaches and holds to be true and holds to be important. The third font then, drawing from tradition, is the magisterium. The Pope, the bishops, in their creeds, their teachings, their writings, all of that we are called to hold as definitive as Catholics. It is essential for us to get a good basis behind that. Now, every semester with months in between, there's always a bit of academic amnesia. We forget what was learned last semester or parts of last semester. What I want to do tonight, fellas, is go over some of the main issues or principles that are going to undergird the whole entire rest of the semester. So tonight is kind of a review of what you did last year 
in the first year with fundamental moral theology and the, the basic stuff of, of uh, moral theology, right? So, first question is, how do we analyze a moral act? How do we understand how a moral, act, a moral um, action is judged? The first principal way we look at is the object of the action. The object is the essential thing we work with when it comes to looking at a moral action. It is the principal factor we look at. So we ask ourselves then, okay, what is the object of a moral act? Well, a couple of things. First thing we look at is what is actually being done? What's the physical thing that's happening here? So for example, if I see someone putting a knife into somebody else, that's the physical action happening. But can I tell just from that act alone, the moral quality of the act? What do you think? No, because it could be robbery or it could be a surgery. Both actions are putting a knife into somebody else. So it's not just the act, the physical act. It's also, what is the person doing? What's the motivation of that person in that action? So if it's a surgeon putting a knife into somebody, that is a good moral object. They're obviously doing surgery to prevent a person from dying by removing you know, cancer, or removing a tumor, a disease organ, whatever the case may be. So that definitely is the object at the look is being done relative to reason. If we don't have the physical action being mentioned, we don't have the object understood. If we don't have the reason part of it, we also don't understand what is going on here. It's very important for us. Another example, kind of classic example. If I see a person jumping out of a window, it could be suicide or somebody escaping a fire. So I don't know necessarily what is happening until I put myself in the position of the acting person. And then I know what's going on here in the object. The object is the driving force of the action. The object is wrong or is evil, regardless of a good intention, the entire act is rendered evil. The object is the what of the action. What is happening here in this very act itself? And it is absolutely essential for us to understand what is going on in the action being performed by the acting person. But then I have to ask myself, okay, what is the first sort of understanding or motivation of this action happening? All right, so the object is the principal driving force of the action. The object is wrong, the rest of the action is wrong as well. Everyone get that? Any questions about the nature of the object? This is very, very important. No questions or what are saying we're coming from with this. Okay, no, no question, but I assume you know it, all right? So, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Christopher, um, you're saying that the object is the what? What is being done? Correct. So, right. Being done is the person jumping out of a window. Correct. So, the person jumps out of a window, but he's saving his own life. That's the action. That's Correct. Okay, so a person, okay. So, the person jumping out of a window to escape a fire. They do that to save their life. So the intention, get that in a minute, the intention is saving their life. Yeah. So the object is the proximate, the, the immediate thing 
they're doing under the auspices of reason. So I'm jumping out of a window to escape a fire for the purpose of saving my life. Okay? If the object is the what, it's just inherently evil. Right. Yeah. Right. So if it would be. the Yeah. If the object is evil, then the then the rest of the action, regardless of intentions or circumstances, is also evil as well. But you're saying that the object might not be deemed evil if the action itself, the why of it, is actually good. Right. Okay. Let's so let's let's kind of back up a second. Yeah, it's important. This this no, it's very good. It's, it's important. It's important question. Thank you for asking. This is what gets authority. All right. So let's give an example. A person jumping out of a window. That kind of classic example. So a person jumps out of a window to escape a fire. That's the object. The intention is to save their life. So I'm jumping out of a window to escape a fire. That's 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 the object. It's not it's it's, it's neither good nor evil in and of itself. It's just for the jumping out of a window. Yeah. But escaping a fire is a good thing, but then you burn to death. So the object there actually is good. I'm, I'm jumping out of a window to escape a fire because that's to not be burned to death. So the intention then is to save my life. You get that? Okay. So in that case, the object is good and the intention is good. Let's take the same example. A person jumping out of a window to commit suicide. Now, the intention is to end their life. But the object here is I'm jumping out of the window, same physical action, but now, instead of escaping a fire, it's to commit suicide. Very different reason is undergirding that action. Oh, my, my, my question was about yeah. that. And I think the action defines the, the morality of that action, or the evil or goodness of it, not the object. Right. Okay, well, the, well the, 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 the act is part of the object. There are two parts of the object. The first is a physical act action being done. Okay? I can't have an object without having a physical action being performed. All right? The second part of the object, though, is what the person is doing in that moment relative to their reason. Because, again, jumping out of the window, a physical action, I can't tell that the good or bad, or that's a good or bad object. I don't know. It could be suicide or escaping a fire. But once I know the acting person, okay, person is escaping a fire, that's a good thing. The object is good. If it's suicide, then the action becomes evil. Make sense? Yeah, it's a very important distinction because we're going to see that it gets muddied later on in other topics in morality. So we have to have a good sense of the object. But the simple physical act itself does not tell us on face value whether the action is good or evil. We just don't know until we know relative to reason what is being done in that case. Okay? So now we have the issue of circumstances. Now circumstances do not render an act good or an act evil. They simply can aggravate the good or enhance the evil. That's what circumstances do. So for example, I, if I am robbing a store, it's a bad thing to do, obviously. It's a bad, bad object. But the circumstance is aggravated if I'm robbing a church. 
Because now I'm both breaking the seventh commandment, not steal, and the first commandment to honor God above everything else. So circumstances can make an object that is evil even worse. But they don't make an evil act good or a good act evil. They simply enhance the good or enhance the evil. They don't actually make an act good or make an act evil. Similarly, if I decide to um, I have a gift of charity, and that charity is really, it's, it's wonderful, and do a lot of good things, that will make the circumstance even better, that action. The circumstances also can make a neutral act good or a neutral act evil. So for example, walking down the street is a good, a good act. If I'm doing that to pick up litter, it makes the act even better. So now it's a neutral act of walking down the street and the circumstance of picking up litter as I'm doing it makes a neutral act good. Similarly, taking a shower is a, is a neutral act. Taking a shower in a public fountain would be a bad thing. It would render the act evil. So it does have an effect on neutral action, rendering them good or evil depending upon the nature of the action being performed and the circumstances around it. Does that make sense? This is this is not. It's kind of muddy. I guess kind of you know convoluted. If it doesn't make sense, stop me and make me correct it because this is not. It's too important to kind of gloss over as if it's not essential to what we're talking about. Then we'll get that distinction. The circumstances, okay? They're going to have very little to do with circumstances in the grand scheme of things. Occasionally, not much. Okay. Lastly, we have the intention. Now, the intention is the driving factor of the entire act. A perform an act for an intention. Whereas the object is the what, the intention is the why. Why am I doing this? So again, using the example of a person jumping out of a, of a, of a burning building. If the object is jumping out of the building to escape a fire, the intention is to save their life. Good intention, the good object, the whole act is good. If the object is a person jumping out of a building to commit suicide, the intention there is to end their life. It's a bad object and it's a bad intention. The whole act then is rendered as being evil. It's important because the majority of people today. Judge actions based upon someone's intention. That is a major problem. Because the ends never justify the means. Right? And this is critical. Because in medical ethics, in issues of scientific research, in issues of end-of-life issues, beginning-of-life issues, what is being done is important. But the why of it, the intention of it, oftentimes takes precedence, and it's a major problem. So for example, let's take a case of a person who is robbing a store, okay? They're robbing a store, that's the physical action to get money. What's the intention? To get that money and buy their mother who's in the hospital flowers. That's a good intention, it's a wonderful thing. But you're doing it in a terrible way. So the object there, the robbery is bad. The intention is good, very good actually. But the problem is, the object itself, robbing to get money, 
is renders the act evil. The majority of people today put the intention as the most important part of an action. It is not. The object is. Uh, people today, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. What, what if somebody was robbing uh, a convenience store, bodega, whatever, because they had a hungry child to feed? Does okay. that make a difference? Yes, it makes it different in the sense of when there is, yeah, when there is some kind of a, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a complicated one, isn't it? The whole, the whole uh, Robin or dilemma. When there is starvation in a, in a society or in amongst the culture, that person who has that bread store, let's say for an argument's sake, or the bodega, whatever, that person should have the morality to help that person whose child is starving. So really, the robbery shouldn't even have to happen. The person who owns the store should be the one who is assisting the person whose child is, is starving. So it kind of, it's, it's one of those questions where it gets a little complicated in that area. But um, it's the whole issue of uh, Les Mis by Jean Valjean, yes. right? Same kind of principle. But Jean Valjean is not wrong. Where he's trying, his family is starving, it's time of famine. The, the, the bread owner has a moral obligation to assist those in his community who are starving. If you have a bread store full of bread that you can't sell, because everyone's poor, and people are starving, you have an obligation to assist those people in your neighborhood, in your area, who are starving. So it does kind of make the act a little more complicated in that sense. Okay. Thank good you. question. It's a good distinguishing point. But how do they resolve those problems? How do you resolve? For example, I'm thinking more in, in the store with definitely one, but you know, what about going and damaging or or, or destroying an abortion clinic? If reason you guys, or are you still there? Oh, I lost you for a second. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Sorry. So what about going and, and, and demolishing an abortion clinic? Yeah, you're, 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 the, the object is destruction and terrible, but the intention is to save lives. Right. The object is wrong. Right. You, to, you can't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it, yeah. One of those questions, and this comes up actually, uh, when I was in seminary, our moral theology prof gave us the example of a person who kills the abortion doctor of an abortion clinic. I didn't want to go there. But but yeah. well, that's that's, what, that's yeah. what the example typically is, but you're, but you're saying principle. And the, act, the, act, the idea is destruction of property or murder in that case. Um, although it will save lives of the unborn, it will unfortunately result in uh, someone's death. And even in that case, in the abortion doctor, there's always a chance for conversion with that person. The thing about Bernard Nathanson, the famous abortion doctor who was uh, kind of an atheist, became a Catholic and became a major opponent of abortion. When he died, his burial, his funeral mass, was in the cathedral here in New York because of his, his saving lives after his conversion experience. So demolishing an abortion clinic isn't going to stop you from going to other places for abortions. It may be property. And it also makes the pro-life movement radical. See, that also is an unintended consequence of this. So it's giving, making the pro-life movement look like it's a radical, a destructive uh, organization that really isn't doing anything helpful in the end, destroying private property. So it's an important, important distinction there. It gets complicated. And we're gonna see how not all of these things are as cut and dry, the examples given tonight. As we go through the semester, we're gonna see how that really has an impact on um, a variety of moral moral actions and moral decisions, okay? Father Chris, can I ask yeah. a question? Um, so 
what we're really talking about is the end really never justifies the means in Correct. this case. Okay. Yeah, the most basic, basic way of putting it. Okay. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, to so Romans 3, 8, St. Paul writes, What of those who say, let us do evil that good may come? And Paul says their condemnation is just. Right. So Paul is saying, hey man, you can't do a bad action for a good intention. It never justifies that purpose. And there are times in history when that has been a major question mark or becomes a major issue of like, what do you do here? You know, it's, it's not always as easy. And, you know, it's always important for us to remember that in in the, um, the kind of cool light of academia, all of these things look easy and are analyzed. In the moment, they're not so easy, they're not so simple. So the real world situations definitely play a role in, in all of this. Right. So what's important to remember, though, is a good intention or set of circumstances may render an act understandable, not justifiable. To understand is not the same as justifying. And this will become extremely important in pastoral ministry. People are going to come to you all kinds of, of issues and problems and, and sins and faults and failings. And the reality is we have to understand where they are coming from. But to understand is not the same thing as justifying the evil of their action. It's a very different type of a thing. Okay, so Father, just to make sure I understand this, you said circumstances does not change or evil act to be a good act. Correct. Go for it. But as David brought, they brought up an example, and I was going to pick up an example, when a parent steals bread to feed their starving child, those are circumstances. Take it to a more extreme. You know, maybe I watch too many movies, but uh, a, a bank officer who uh, uh, criminals invade the house and rob the bank for me, I'm going to kill your family. Obviously, the action or the objection of the object of robbing the bank is evil, right. but it saves your family's lives. Right. In that circumstances. Okay, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good point. It, well, that also, though, when a person's under duress, yeah. renders the action less free. See, the morality of an action is a free, freely chosen act that I'm performing. If I'm under a serious duress or something of that nature, I'm not free to act in that moment. So my freedom is compromised. So if my will is compromised, therefore the action really becomes a whole different, whole different reality because my, my will to choose is, is being compromised in, in that moment. So that kind of, that complicates the action even further because then I'm not as free as I should be to perform an action which renders it good or evil. Does that make sense? Or not? But that's not considered circumstances though, that's considered something else? I mean, it would be, it would be circumstances. It would not render the act good. But it, would, but it would render the act um, less evil or it would give the person culpability would be diminished because of that circumstance. But it does not render the act good. All right, so the act would still be evil, but not as evil. But the, 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 the person's culpability in that moment is lessened. So their own, maybe it'd be almost, an, almost nothing, frankly. So if a person's will is so compromised because of duress, that they can't act freely, it doesn't render the object good but the person is not necessarily guilty because they're under duress in performing that action. 
and to make it even more complicated. That's no, cool. Of course, yeah. The law, the law recognizes. I'm, I teach criminal justice, so the law recognizes the concept of necessity. Right. So, if, for example, you commit an act that is going to whatever act you're doing is uh, far less an evil from the act that you're trying to prevent, for example, the law excuses your culpability. So, for example, if 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 a and this is actually a true story. There was a, a guy in Philadelphia who was walking down the street. His wife was pregnant. She started bleeding profusely. The guy jumps in a car with keys in it and drives her to the hospital and saved her life. He was not criminally liable because the act of what he did was uh, prevented a greater evil. Uh, but also, he wasn't really necessarily stealing the car with the purpose of stealing it to be able to you know, sell it for parts. He was taking it to be able to save his wife's life. So right. therefore, the object is not stealing the car. The object is taking the car to save someone's life, to bleeding to death, to save her life. If the object there that I'm stealing the car, the purpose of making money off of it, that's a whole different reality. Now, other than having the car cleaned afterwards and being returned to the guy, you know, then the action was not as bad as, uh, as stealing it might have otherwise been. Again, real-world cases, real-world situations render these things uh, much more complicated than academia uh, and these kind of things are naked. So it's, it's, not playing, it's not word games either. It's trying to be able to be careful with understanding the, the way of, under, of adjudicating actions properly in light of real-world cases. Moral theology does not deal in hypotheticals. Moral theology deals in real-world cases. It's so important for us to understand that. To concoct all kinds of other, you know, crazy scenarios isn't helpful. The founders given to us is a real world, great, a real world case. How to apply principles to real world cases. All right? Good stuff, guys. This is, listen, for this to work this year, I'm going to need your involvement. Otherwise, you're going to get real boring for everybody real fast. So if there are comments or questions or examples to, to enhance, let's roll with it. Otherwise, it's going to get real challenging for you and for me. This is really good. And these things are, these things are all prompt questions and prompt um, possibilities because this stuff is, is complicated and it's real-world stuff for sure. All right? All right. Now, we live in a world that is um, complicated for sure with evil because of original sin. So there are times when a certain action will have a good end and a bad and a bad end okay if, if, if there's two actions and both actions are evil the whole act is evil but if one act is evil and one act is good what do i do in that case so people will say well, look you know my heart's in the right place I have, I have a good intention here well that's not great but a person may say well i don't want to ever do any evil at all that person can be paralyzed because it's not how society works. So Catholic moral theology gives us the principle of double effect. When a certain action will have two effects, one good and one evil. So how do you understand a principle like this? Double effect looks at the actions being performed. So the first principle, for an act to be rendered not completely evil, on double effect analysis, the action being performed must not be 
intrinsically evil. So, for example, nothing ever justifies abortion. Are evil. Secondly, the evil must not be intended. To foresee is not the same as to intend. So, for example, if I go to the dentist, a root canal, I foresee it's going to be painful and expensive. I foresee it, I don't intend it. So, the evil must not be intended in the, in the actions. Three, the good effect cannot proceed directly from the evil effect. The good effect cannot proceed directly from the evil effect. We're going to see in a minute how it works in a real world situation. Bear with me. And the fourth is, yeah. Was I the only one that missed the first point? The first point is the act cannot be intrinsically evil. By the way, what is an intrinsic evil? From last semester, what do you guys remember about intrinsically evil things? Anyone want to jump in here and give me a give me a give me a abortion? Abortion is an intrinsic evil, right? It is. So, what? Why is abortion intrinsically evil? What about what about abortion is intrinsically evil? It's it's the it's the taking of an innocent life. Correct. So an intrinsically evil action is that which can never be justified. Right. Nothing justifies it, right? Here's a question for you. Is every intrinsically evil action a mortal sin? No. No, why not? Um, I guess a couple of examples like, um, for example, like lying. Not all lying is intrinsically evil. I mean, you have white lies. I mean, I would hope that's not intrinsically evil, otherwise I'm in big trouble. <laughs> um, so, also war. I mean, in, in the case of war, um, there's a different, I, I mean, at least I think, there's a difference between murder and self-defense. Absolutely. Um, so, again, killing someone... Um, you know, for no reason, it, it, as, as opposed to something like war or self-defense, that's, you know, war or self-defense is not something that's intrinsically evil, I don't think. Right. right. Okay, no, look, good, good points. First thing is this. Lying actually is intrinsically evil. Any act of lying, but a white lie is very, very light matter. So no one goes to hell for a white lie, right? But any act of any worrying of dishonesty is in fact intrinsically evil. Lying is always wrong. But it's not always gray matter. But it's rarely gray matter, I would say, actually. But it can be gray matter in certain cases, but it's always intrinsically evil. In the case of war, murder is intrinsically evil. Killing is not. There's a big, big difference here. The fifth commandment in national original Hebrew does not proscribe killing what it proscribes or says is wrong is murder, which is the killing of the innocent. The killing of the innocent is always, always wrong. Nothing ever justifies the killing of the innocent, directly killing of the innocent, all right? 
Now, question of war brings us to actually a good, a good example of double effect. Let's say that a in a wartime situation, a a military is going to bomb a chemical weapons plant, which will help to expedite the end of the war. They realize it is possible, not intended, possible that civilians might be killed. Not intended, maybe foreseen, possible. So the first question is this, is the bombing of a chemical weapons plant in wartime, in the evening, after it's closed, an intrinsically evil act? No. Right, exactly, because it's not, you're not directly killing anybody. Not intrinsically evil. Second, is the evil possibility of the innocent being killed intended? No. Right. Yeah, there's questions. Interrupt me, it's fine. I see your hand, hand kind of raised a little bit here. Is that, I'm not sure. Yeah. What about when you dropped the uh, nuclear bomb? Ah. Uh, on a whole city. Yeah, that, that, well, yeah. You're frozen, Peter. It's I froze. Father, father, yeah. really bad because you, you froze there. I didn't hear anything. Let me let me try in something else here. My connection's not not great here tonight. Let me try um, the pair with my phone's a hotspot. The Wi-Fi in the school is not uh, great right now. Give me a second here, guys. I, I think about dropping a nuclear bomb to wipe out right. the, like in World War Two. Right, right. Hang, we'll give is good. Wait, maybe I'm not. Huh, my Wi-Fi is not good. What the heck's going on here? Probably, and I'm thinking about it right now. You know, so it's it's a very complicated thing, but it, under 
strict rule theology principles. Yeah, it was wrong. I mean, there's no other way of, of, of saying it, frankly. But um, yeah, go ahead. There's a lot of judgment here. I, I, we're going to cut dry. So you're saying there's three ways that we can judge moral theology, but as deacons, it's in our little simple world of taking on this calling, how do we judge that? How? I mean, maybe I'm setting up the course for the rest of the semester, but how do we come to an answer? Because I promise you, if we went to, uh, you know, some statistical good number of priests or other deacons, we're going to get different answers to that moral that moral line. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to give you guys this semester is what the church teaches regarding moral theology. I will tell I will tell you when there are certain questions that are not decided yet. We're going to have some of those, and in those cases, I'll give you my opinion. But I'm only, I'm, only, I'm only going to tell you what the church herself teaches about these complicated issues. At the end of the day, fellas, as we're being ministers, my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what the church herself thinks. That's how we judge ourselves as men who are pursuing the call to hold the orders. Our own impressions here are not the important thing. What the church teaches is the important thing. Now, I can have my own opinion and say, well, I think this is what's going on here. But at the end of the day, what the church teaches is how we have to conform our lives in terms of what, what the church herself uh, is giving us. And it's very important as future deacons we have a sense of that because it's important to know what's, what's opinion, what's, what's valid opinion, and what is what the church teaches definitively. And that's kind of the end of the discussion on those topics. But it seems to me that the question of World War II and nuclear, war, and nuclear bomb, it's hard to justify that under strict Catholic moral principles. They give you a direct answer. But again, on a personal level, I'm conflicted about it. But the church herself kind of teaches, that would be wrong. Yeah, go ahead. I see your hand. What about, what about today? Mm -hmm. How does the church feel about opening schools in certain areas where the coronavirus is very high and you're risking teachers and students? Right. Well, that's a case where it's what we call prudential judgment. If there's, a, if there's a high incidence of the coronavirus in a certain area and the possibility of children being infected or just being infected is great, then it may be the judgment of that diocese to not open schools in that area. So, for example, right now in New York, we're opening up our Catholic schools here, you know, in, in, in a, week from, from, a week from Wednesday. It seems right now in New York that the caseload here has dropped dramatically, thank God. Here at Annunciation, we're opening up next week, actually. We have six-foot, um, I'll show you a picture of the, of the class I'm teaching right now. You can see. We have, um, see this desks that are separated, right? We see how they're kind of like, you know, not close together. Um, teachers are going to wear masks and face shields. Students are going to all wear masks all day. Um, there's hand sanitizing stations. Uh, lunches are going to be at each person's table. Um, we're doing everything that is prudential to keep a school, our school open. Now, I think the converse of this are the colleges that opened. College students, by the nature of their age, don't always act with the most prudence in decisions. I mean, that's just a thought. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that's my sense of it. So, I mean, our college students who have an invisibility complex, and when you're young, that age, and you're you think I'm invincible, right? No virus is going to affect me, whatever. Yet what we see happening, sadly, is in a variety of schools now, you've had outbreaks of this. Notre Dame is closed. 
last week because of this. So, I mean, to me, that's a much more serious issue because you have a situation where, you know, kids are not going to act with the smartest, you know, uh, reasons in those situations. That's the case where prudence should dictate this is a bad idea. Now, at the same time, when it comes to, to our schools, I mean, parents have the option, though. If a parent is concerned about their child going into that school, or let's say that at home, it's grandma and grandpa living with you, right? Well, they're at high risk. So if the little kid comes home with the coronavirus and they're asymptomatic and give it to a grandparent, that could be a death sentence. So I understand why a parent may say, you know what, father, or you know what, principal, whatever, I, I want to make a learning remotely. And they can do that. That's an option every parent has. So no one's forcing anybody to go back to school. But we are saying we're doing everything necessary to keep our kids safe when they come back here. But there are places, if you're living in a state right now, where it has ravaged that state, I'm not sure it's smart to begin school in those areas. So that's more of a case of judgment using prudence um, in those situations than anything else. But uh, it's a complicated case. It really is. I mean, you worry about New York City. I mean, right now, thank God, everything is seemingly it's quieting down. But, I mean, you don't know what it's may not, happen when schools reopen next week. And, yeah, God forbid, is not break or something. It's not as good as you think, unfortunately. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, in the 10468 area code in the Bronx where I practice at one of the hospitals, over the past weekend, we had seven patients come in, one dead, and oh. nine employees positive, and they're not sure where the outbreak stemmed from. So the issue no, is, is that, enough, yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, I'm, you know, the issue is, you know, riding the trains, people not adhering to protocols of wearing masks, sanitizing. It's a whole, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's part, you know, it's part, partly the sociopathy of, you know, um, you know, the community that doesn't adhere to the guidelines. And it's part just that we're so crowded and we're so, you know, jammed in that, you know, it, it's, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that this thing, that the resurgence may, you know, may be hopefully not as bad as it was before, but, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a problem because of, you know, once this thing takes off, um, you know, with influenza, there, there, you know, that may be a big problem. So I, if I had a kid right now, under no circumstances would I send that kid to school, especially when they're coming back and the potential now, because the CDC cannot, you know, you know, make up their mind, are kids more, you know, more contagious and infectious or are they not? And the reality is they are, you know, because if you think about it, when you send your kid to daycare, you know, you're sick every two weeks. So, you know, this is problematic. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And it's a matter of seeing what's going to happen when all this stuff does reopen. And, and I think that I'm, I'm worried, you're right, Anthony, about the possibility of this thing taking off, as you're saying. And with flu season, you have to worry about it. You know, we're doing this via Zoom to avoid having more people in the seminary for the guys, because they're all they're all there, obviously. And uh, seminarians are pretty much locked in right. the semester, um, for their own good, which is not easy, but it's for their own good to keep them safe. No, totally so, agree. Yeah. And these are times when um, acting pr acting prudently is um, is important. Yeah, paramount. No, because the bishops who closed their diocese down took a lot of heat because people think, well, it's not, not fair, the sacraments, and I get it. But the fact of the matter is, they're also shepherds who care for body and soul. 
And their concern was, my gosh, what's going to happen to my older parishioners? Because they're, they're the first ones who are going to go to church in a pandemic. Yep. That's Absolutely. the reality. I've been yep. a priest for 12, almost 12 years, and I was, when I was in the parish, I can tell you that in a snowstorm, in a blizzard, there was a snowshoe they had to get to church, the older folks. Yeah, exactly. So it must, and they're the ones that are most at risk. Right. So um, we're facing some serious some serious questions and problems right now. So, um, yeah, but, the, but the prudent, being, being prudent is always uh, an important thing to be when you're talking about issues of this nature, for sure. Not to get political, but I mean, the church is political. But the thing is, you have governors of various states who are making decisions not based on the welfare of the people, the citizens, but on the economy. Sure. So they're putting the economy before lives. The church does not make comments today on the morality of that. Right. Well, we would say that if you're, if you're valuing economic. Um, economic success or economic recovery over people's lives, that would be a serious moral problem, for sure. Now, at the same time, people would say, well, my livelihood, my my, my family, maybe homeless, we don't open up. This is where it gets complicated. And on one sense, you can say, well, what do you, where do you work? You know, I don't understand why they open up, you know, a bar, but not open up a restaurant. Like, it doesn't seem to be like, what's what's going on here? So it becomes a bit of a complicating factor, but the fact, the reality is, if we're valuing economic success, economic recovery over people's lives, that's where you have to begin to say, well, there's got to be a line uh, drawn somewhere. And unfortunately, you know, I was just saying, Peter, the reality is that um, there are certain political situations right now in this country, as divided as we are, where I'm sure things are being made more in the interest of politics than in the interest of people's safety and um, and well-being, and that's just a shame. But does the church have an obligation to speak up if they think a political leader is not being morally proper? One thing we've said through our own actions in churches that um, you know we're not going to put ourselves put other people at risk. The cathedral has lost millions upon millions of dollars by not having you know the candles available. I mean, it's incredible. But that's speaking loudly. I think saying, "Look, we're not going to we're not going to risk." people getting the coronavirus by lighting a candle or somebody else touched a wick or whatever for it. So we're, we're kind of showing through our actions, uh, our, our kind of stance on it. We've lost a tremendous amount of money. And the fact of closing 20 schools in the archdiocese is a re- direct result of the coronavirus, but we simply can't afford it. So rather than trying to be negligent in our responsibility toward those that are, that are perhaps ill or whatever, we just can't risk the possibility. And unfortunately, 20 schools in the archdiocese uh, closed because enrollment was just, it, it just plummeted. We, there was not enough people in the school to be able to justify keeping it open, which is a very sad reality. But um, such as it is. All right. But um, can I finish off the fourth principle uh, of. Uh, yeah, Excuse me, Father. Could you go back and redo those points again? I only sure, I got sure. stuck on number one. Problem. Number one, the, the act cannot be intrinsically evil. If the act is intrinsically evil, there can be no justifying that action at all. Okay? Make sense? Did I that point or is that good? Okay. The fourth principle is there must be a proportionate reason to allow the evil effect. There must be a proportionate reason 
to allow the evil effect. So, go back to the example again of bombing the chemical weapons factory in, in wartime. First principle we said, it is not bombing a weapons factory, not targeting civilians directly, is not intrinsically evil. So it, it covers the first principle. Second principle is the evil must not, the evil effect must not be intended. It's not. It could be foreseen, meaning the death of civilians, but it's not intended. Third principle, the good effect does not flow from the evil effect. So the bombing, the possible death of civilians does not lead to the end of the war. All right? There's not a direct causality there. And the fourth principle is proportionality. Is it proportionate to have the possibility of that the civilians who end the war? And the answer there is yes. You're foreseeing it, you're not intending it, but it's proportionate to end the war to allow yourself to bomb the chemical weapons factory, which could possibly result in the death of civilians. It is a different situation we are dealing with the intentional direct attack upon civilians. We both you both intend it and you foresee it. That becomes a moral problem. Now, there were hard cases in this, in this scenario. We're going to see some of those as they go through this uh, this semester. Um, and medical ethics, especially, this is going to apply. It's very important for us to get a sense of this now as we can move forward. Now, the problem becomes this. Some moral theologians take that fourth principle, proportionality, and make that the overarching principle for all moral decision-making. And what they will say is, as long as a final effect is good, anything then, essentially, can be allowed. This is called consequentialism. And consequentialism essentially says that as long as the end I seek is good, and my intention is good, anything may be chosen. As long as the end is good, and my intention is good, anything may be chosen. So if that's the decision, what are they not factoring in? If my intention is good, what are they not factoring in? Which level of moral again? The object. Exactly. They're completely overlooking it. There's never been ever in Catholic moral theology a time when the object was not seen as the principal factor in moral decision making. Consequentialists, this is a very serious problem because what they'll say is this look, they don't deny that there are some evil actions or things that are less good. No way of looking at it. So you now adultery, let's say, is wrong. Adultery is wrong, but it's not wrong in all cases. If adultery, they'll say, can lead to some greater good, then adultery in that case is not a good thing, but it isn't an evil thing morally either. And there are some theologians today who will say that. They say, look, it's not a moral evil. It's an ontic evil, or that is ontic, O-N-T-I-C, an ontic evil, or a pre-moral evil, whatever that is, or a pre-moral disvalue. I mean, 
this is a word, it's all, it's all relegate, right? It's wordplay. And be very careful when it comes to people use terms like ontic evils, uh, premoral disvalue, um, premoral evil. Words have meaning. And verbal engineering precedes societal engineering. If I control language, I control the world. Because how someone speaks, how something is defined, is so important that it can it can change entire society. We're kind of seeing that now, a little bit, in our own country, in our own time. So for them, as long as the 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 evil is proportionate to the good, the evil may be chosen, which is a real problem. In that case, anything can be justified as long as some good, essentially, or how I see it at least, comes out of it. But the question becomes then, who defines proportion? Who makes that decision? The person themselves does. That's a real problem. Now, the reason behind it, the motivation for it, is that we face real-world, very difficult situations. Proportionalism and consequentialism give us an escape hatch in those cases. So, for example, young woman who's 17 years old, freshman in college, goes to a party, is given a drug, gets essentially raped, and gets pregnant. In that case, her having the abortion is for the good of her having her education finished, not having an island of pregnancy, not having the stigma of this. So the abortion in that case is justifiable because she has proportionate reasons for doing it. Rather than us saying, no, abortion is always wrong, it's the innocent, it's the killing of the innocent. But in those cases, it gives the out, right? It's an escape hatch in difficult moral circumstances. And that's why it's so attractive to people. But the church is taught consistently, and John Paul II only reconfirmed it, these ideas are completely and utterly problematic. And, you know, additionally, when it comes to the issues of language, you know, for many years, we heard about, oh, they were pro-choice. But choice for what? But now, it becomes reproductive rights. Because everyone likes having rights. So now, I totally take away what I'm doing, and I couch it in terms of the right of reproductive rights. What does that even mean? I mean anything, really, essentially. What they use is this language to try and control the way in which the conversation is going to happen. All of this is the root, as well, of relativism, right? Relativism simply says there is no objective standard, there is no objective truth. And this, gentlemen, is one of the major issues you're going to come across in your ministry as deacons. People will say to you, that's your truth, that's your ba- that's your idea, that's your understanding of it. And everyone loves to quote Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says in the Gospels, judge not, lest ye be judged. Every atheist knows that verse and quotes it at will. Because their point is, how dare you pass judgment on me? Here's the problem with that analysis. We are called, we must, we must judge actions. We do not judge people. It's a very important distinction. Love the sinner, 
hate the sin, that kind of deal, right? So in that case, when Jesus is saying that, what Jesus is saying is you don't know a person's intention, their heart. All you see is the action. If the action is wrong, you call it wrong. But you don't know what's going on in a person's heart. You cannot judge the person. You must judge the action. It is a charity, active charity, to instruct those and correct those who are acting the wrong way. To instruct the ignorant is a spiritual work of mercy, and we're called to do it. So if someone says to you, Deacon, you can't judge me because after all, my truth is operating. Wait, 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 hang on. Wait a second here. You know, what Jesus meant by that was not judging a person. I am called to judge someone's actions. You have to do that. Actually, they got, they got, the scriptures are clear on the importance of doing that. Very, very important that uh, we understand this. Now, relativism also has a major flaw. Ask a relativist. Do you believe relativism applies in all cases? Now, if they say, well, yeah, sure it does. Well, wait a minute. If a thing applies in all cases, that's, that's an absolute. Relativism falls. So you're saying that relativism applies in all cases. But if it's all cases, that's an absolute statement, not a relative statement. If they say, well, it applies in most cases, well, then what cases does it not apply to? Most times, when a person supports relativism, what is going on is there's one or two things, like one thing in their life, they really just can't justify. They want to. Story about uh, Edward Sree, who's a professor at the Gustin Institute out in, De out in Denver, uh, Colorado, and talking about yeah, a student once. The student was a committed relativist. And Sri asked him, you believe that the 9-11 attacks on this country were not morally evil? And the student said, no, it's relative. Those terrorists, that action was morally acceptable. How can I judge them? That's like appalling and it's insane, frankly. And the guy went home that night and thought about it some more, the student did, and realized the insanity of that position. He came back to Dr. Shree, you're right. That was an evil act. Because I'm a relativist, or I was a relativist. We got my girlfriend and I, had been sleeping together for the last you know, six months or so, and I don't justify that. So I was saying that there are no moral absolutes, but clearly in some cases, there are. Another issue is relativists whole relativism still applies to them. So for example, they'll say that not nothing has a truly good or truly bad outcome. Okay, if you rob their house, they're not gonna say, well, that was good for you, but not for me, that's okay, I can't judge you. They have to for the cops, have you arrested? So relativists, their own, their own philosophy doesn't hold up under scrutiny. It's insane. So it doesn't work in those cases. Does everyone kind of see how relativism um, is a real serious uh, issue and how it doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things? But society loves, this is, a, this is a major philosophical driving principle in our world today is relativism. There's no right, there is no wrong. It's your right, 
and it's your wrong. There's no objective truth. But that just doesn't hold up under reality. It doesn't work. If I kill a relativist spouse or a relativist child, then I can say, well, that was good for you, but not for me. No one is going to take it. The killing of the innocent is always wrong. So it's important for us to get a real good grasp on how to be able to respond. Like, you'll hear it. I guarantee you'll hear it in your ministries as deacons. It's important to have good, sound, quick, and smart answers when those people come against us with um, those arguments. All right? If we can get that, any questions about any of that? Father, what is proportionalism again? Proportionalism is as long as the good is proportionate to the evil, I can do it. So, for example, they'll say, well, if I'm in a village, let's say in Burkina Faso, for argument's sake, and and I'm told by the chief, you have to kill this person or the whole village will be destroyed. What they'll say is the murder of that one innocent person will save the village. Therefore, it's proportionate. The evil of murdering an innocent person is proportionate to the village being saved. Therefore, the murder of the innocent person is justifiable. Proportionalism is that the evil is proportionate to the good. Consequentialism, consequentialism just says as long as the intention is good, the act essentially is good as well. The object, in those cases, has no bearing on the decision-making of what's going on in the action itself. All right. All right. Next principle, again, like double effect analysis, in a, com- in a complex and fallen world, it's hard for us to avoid cooperation with evil. So how do we deal with this when it comes to how we deal with the issue of cooperation with evil? First, there are two different types of cooperation with evil. The first type is called formal cooperation. Now, formal cooperation means I agree with the evil being done. In that case, the person is completely agreeing with the evil. The cooperation is a serious moral problem for them. Is the evil, they agree with it. The much more complicated one, it was called material cooperation. Now material cooperation is a case where I don't agree with the evil being done, but in some way I'm cooperating with it. This needs to be kind of fleshed out now to see what we're talking about in those cases. We nuanced a little bit here. So the first kind of material cooperation is known as immediate material cooperation. Immediate. I mean, the person is directly cooperating with the evil being done. They're intricately involved with the evil being done. Think about here the case of a nurse who works in an abortion clinic. If she's handing the doctor the instruments of the abortion in the room where it's taking place, whether she agrees with it or not, she's immediately cooperating with evil. 
it's hard to imagine a person that close to the evil not being a formal cooperator with the evil. In that case, the person is an immediate, we allow the possibility, unless they have a person under duress, handing the doctor those instruments. They disagree with it, but they're, they're very close to the evil being committed. So immediate material cooperation in that case. All right? Now, it's also, we talk about as immediate cooperation. The person is somewhat separated from the evil being committed. Here, it's a case of like a receptionist who works at an abortion clinic. She's there working at an abortion clinic, which is not in the operating room with the nurse and the doctor performing the abortion, which is doing it wrong, which is not actually physically right there, immediately present to the evil being performed in the abortion, right? There's also like remote cooperation with evil. This is the case of the bus driver whose route is on the way to the clinic. He passes by, he's a stop right there. He stops there, it's a bus stop, what can you do? But he's very kind of far removed from the issue of the evil being committed. The first is formal, always wrong. Second is material, which has immediate, which is you're right there in the middle of the action being done as evil. There's immediate, you're separated from it, but you're still kind of close to it. And then there's remote cooperation, which you're, you're kind of far from it, but there's some small level of cooperation involved in that effect. But it's so, so separate from it that you're almost not culpable morally at all in that case. So the bus can't change his route, but not really culpable at all in that case with evil being performed in that moment. All right, everyone get those distinctions? We're there, okay. Questions, comments? All good. All right. Next, looking at the issue of conscience. Now, conscience is defined as an act of moral judgment, an act of moral judgment, taking moral knowledge and applying it to a concrete choice. Conscience is an act of moral judgment, taking moral knowledge and applying it to a concrete choice. We talk about the importance here of properly forming a person's conscience. Because conscience is binding on us. We are called to respect our conscience. It is absolutely essential for us to do this. The case was posed to a John Henry Newman, great new saint. And they asked him, if you're at a dinner party, who would you toast first, the Pope or conscience? And Newman said, I would toast conscience first, and then toast the Pope. Now, a lot of people say that shows that Catholics are free in conscience to reject papal teaching. Because Newman said, toast conscience, then toast the Pope. What Newman meant, though, is they could not be able to properly accept church teaching without a well-formed, well-developed, proper conscience. The conscience is binding on us in our life. So, 
there are two kinds of erroneous conscience. The first is called invincibly erroneous, which is I-N-V-I-N-C-I-B-L-Y, an invincibly erroneous conscience, which means that a person is free from guilt because their conscience was badly formed at no fault of their own. Their conscience is badly formed at no fault of their own. For a person to have an invincibly erroneous conscience, there are two principles that must hold. First is that conscience is certain. There is no doubt about the part the person not doubtful. The conscience is certain in that case. It is binding because it is certain. All right? The second principle, there must be involuntary error, meaning the person did not look for other look for the wrong definitions, they searched for the proper truth, and they still came to the wrong conclusion here. But it is no fault of their own. A person has a visibly erroneous conscience if there is no involuntary error or negligence in the search for truth or distortion of truth. A person has made every effort to learn the proper thing and still, whatever reason, has come to a wrong conclusion. A person who acts on an invisibly erroneous conscience is not guilty of sin if they choose the wrong thing. Because in their mind, acting on a certain conscience that's been poorly formed, they're, they're correct. They think they're right in doing this. But to act on that kind of a conscience does not make a bad action good. It's simply saying that your conscience was formed poorly and therefore you have the wrong idea when it comes to an action being good or being evil in those cases. It does not change the moral quality of an action. This is very different when a person says, I don't think this is evil. Well, so what? You know, a person will say, well, yeah, I know the church teaches, but I just don't believe that's evil. That person does not have an invisibly erroneous conscience. They know the truth, and they choose to reject the truth. That person lives in a state of self-deception. It's very different from the person who, no fault of their own, has a wrongly formed, invisibly erroneous conscience. Everyone get that distinction? All right. Was there a name for that? Invincible? Is that something? Invincibly, invincibly erroneous conscience. Okay. Thank you. Yep. The second kind of conscience, also malformed, is called invincibly, invincibly erroneous conscience. So invincibly, and now talking about Invincibly erroneous conscience. This person, in fact, is guilty because they've chosen to not have a well-formed conscience. In this case, the first principle of invincibly erroneous conscience 
because the conscience is not certain, but it's doubtful. You never act on a doubtful conscience, especially in a serious moral issue. So a person's conscience is visibly erroneous if the conscience is doubtful. Second principle. It's visibly erroneous if it's certain due to voluntary error. Meaning, I read a book or heard a priest who I know is, is, is a um, not with the church on a certain issue and have them defend what I want to believe is true. So I know what the church teaches. But Father so-and-so said, this is the case and said, I'm going with him. You I know what the church teaches. So in that case, the person is choosing to be in error. And the main problem here is a visibly erroneous conscience is to see something as permissible or optional when in fact it is forbidden or obligatory. So for example, I believe in my conscience that, um, I don't know, stealing from a store is okay. That's a you know, good example. Well, no, stealing from a store is, is wrong. But I have chosen to believe something that is totally wrong about stealing. My conscience can be certain that I, yeah, I heard Father So-and-so, he's stealing is fine, I'm doing that, that's insane. But the person is guilty in that case of committing a sin, even though they think they're doing the right thing. The person has chosen to keep themselves in a self-accepted state when it comes to the issue of their conscience being formed, I mean, being poorly formed in that situation. So, right? so yeah. these are kind of similar to sociopaths, which they know it's wrong, but they just do it anyway because it essentially oh. just benefits them. I think, um, I think in this case, yeah, that's yeah. I think also though, it's more of a case of a person who um, justifies their action based upon what they, they want to believe is true. So, for example, um, you'll see with couples for marriage preparation. The vast majority of them are living together, not going to church. They've kind of convinced themselves that because everyone in society, seemingly, is doing this, they're living together for marriage, that yeah, they're fine, not a big deal, they're justifiable. Their conscience may be clear actually, may believe they're right. But of course they're acting in a morally wrong way. But they've chosen through believing society's deception about this, this is the proper way to act. They know what the church teaches, but they choose to reject it. Or they choose to disregard it because all society is acting and promoting a certain way. Right. So that's, you know, a sociopath more so has no sense of empathy for other human beings. They, they do things that are just completely um, unsympathetic, unempathetic. They have, no, they have no sense of this being wrong at all. These folks have a sense of it, but they don't really want to pursue the possibility of that. The problem okay. with this also is that to follow a visibly erroneous conscience, the person sins either way. So, for example, if I believe that something is permissible, but in fact it is forbidden, and I do it acting in my conscience, I'm sinning. It's forbidden, but I believe it's okay. On the other hand, if one sees something as obligatory, when in fact it is optional, and does not choose it 
the person sins. So, for example, right now in New York, the Archdiocese of New York, there is no Sunday obligation for Mass or Holy Day because of the coronavirus. Proper as a person stays home from Mass because of the virus, they're not committing any kind of a sin. But let's say that a person has committed, a person, a person thinks for some reason that the, the, the Cardinal has made Mass obligatory as an, again, and they choose not to go. And in their malformed conscience, what they think is obligatory, they're treating as if it's optional. That person is committing a sin because they are acting against their conscience. Their conscience malformed is telling them this is the wrong thing to do. And they're choosing to do it anyway, even though it's not wrong at all. So you see how serious this issue the malformation of consciences it really um, distracts us from being able to properly understand the morality of an action because the conscience is dulled in those cases and most people today operate under the auspices of a dull conscience and that becomes a real serious issue similarly the issue of not knowing things is a whole issue of ignorance a lot of people will say ignorance is the eighth sacrament. Because if you don't know it, you can't be guilty for it. So people treat ignorance, that ignorance is a get out of jail free card when it comes to that. But again, like conscience, if someone acts in an ignorant way, and they haven't chosen to find the truth, they haven't chosen to examine the right thing, they're acting in an ignorant way, they're guilty of, uh, of a sin, even if, in those cases, it's not necessarily sinful. The person who doesn't know better is choosing to act out of ignorance, which could be a serious problem in those cases. All right? Everyone on board with that, uh, those definitions? Father. Yeah. In, in a real-life situation, I have a cabin that's fairly remote in the woods. And I ask every priest this, just how far do, is too far to miss Mass? You know, I ask... <laughs> Every, I do a lot of pre-shopping here. Unfortunately, my pastor says it doesn't matter. You got to go. So right. I'm not off the hook. But that's a good example for me. Is is that the that's that invincibly erroneous then? Yes, because you know that your pastor has instructed you to go to mass on Sunday, even if the cabin is you know off in the woods somewhere. Now that was it. Look, possibility for mass. You have Saturday night. You have mass usually on Sunday nights. The way yeah, you're away for the weekend and still being able to get to Mass on on Sundays. It's so, like an hour drive. That's what my point was. Just how far is too far? Is there such a thing? No. Well, no. let me, let me, hang on. There is a sense of it in this, in this, case, this case. If someone's on a cruise ever again, for example, we're on a cruise yeah. and there's no priest on board the cruise and they miss Mass, they're not guilty of missing the mass. However, the obligation of the Sabbath doesn't go away. See, Sunday obligation is ecclesiastical law. So a bishop, as has happened, can say the obligation of mass on Sundays is no longer binding. However, the obligation of the Sabbath doesn't go away. So when the church closed down with, with coronavirus back in March, 
it didn't mean that Sunday is like Saturday. No, what it means is now you can go to Mass, but you watch Mass on TV, or you read scripture, you pray a rosary, you do something to honor the Sabbath. Because the obligation of the Sabbath does not go away, even if going to Mass is not possible. Very important to understand that distinction. So you're asking your pastor, getting good, but if you had, John, if you had asked, let's say, the priest, ah, John, don't worry about it, come on, it's not a big deal, it's an hour away, long drive. Anyway, you know, Father, you're right, Father, I'm going with you. And you know that your pastor told you, John, get the mask and then come on. That's where it becomes a bit of an issue. Because now, you're, now you, you've, you've gotten information from a trusted source in your pastor who told you, John, get the mask, come on, man, let's go. And you, cho- and you choose not to do that. That becomes a problem. Go ahead, Chris. So you're gonna, you know, Peter, go ahead. Look, you're, 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 you're muted. And that will be an issue you all semester. You mentioned the example, you're on a cruise. And right. No priest. So you can't go. That's happened to me. Sure. But both you, like John just said, you go away for the weekend, and and you know where you're going. There isn't a church or going to be a priest. You have the free will to make that decision. You know that whole weekend you're not going to have the ability to honor the Sabbath or go to mass. I should say. Right. Would that then be a sin? No, because you've chosen to do something which. Look, you notice that it's a reality. There are times when we simply are going to be in a certain situation where mass becomes impossible to be able to attend. Now, not the ideal situation, but there unfortunately are situations where that will be the case. I don't think that will be a matter of committing a moral sin because you're going somewhere where there is no option. The ability to mass just isn't there. I don't think that makes you, you can't, you can't be held to an impossible standard. And if we're going on vacation, you you have the free will to decide to go there or not. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you still there are times when our real world choice of going on a trip that doesn't allow us to have mass. It's true. I mean, you're making a real decision there, but I don't think you're not going on the trip to avoid going to mass. See what I'm saying? There's a distinction there. Trip where unfortunately. Mass is not going to be, it's foreseen, but not intended. In my, in my sense of it, at least that's the case. But it's different than if you're on a cruise, let's say, and you're out, your, your daily excursion conflicts with going to Mass on the cruise ship. Now you get a bit more problem. Now you, get, now you have Mass being offered there. But maybe your, your excursion, you can't go on because you have... Mass being offered at the same time. It's a possibility. But to me, as long as you're not doing it to avoid going to Mass, but by unfortunate reality of, of, of life, you can't go to Mass, you know, that happens, unfortunately. People get really hung up about this because it will happen in the confessional. Where there's some confession, Father, I missed Mass last week. Well, what happened? Well, I, was, I had the flu. Well, you're, it's fine. They don't worry about it, you know? People get completely out of shape about these things. But again, it's a, it's a malformed conscience. The person was taught one line somewhere and missing mass for any reason at all is mortal sin. It's not. It's not. It normally is, 
But most times, though, it'll be the opposite. A person takes a lot more lax approach than a rigorous approach to these things. That becomes usually the issue that um, we have to deal with. But real-world situations certainly are the ones that you have to be more attentive to um, you know, in these cases, in these situations, for sure. But that all that stuff is um, is important in these areas. Any questions about any of this stuff so far this evening? Things that are unclear, things that need a clarification. Father, I have a bunch of questions, but I'm sure that there are medical ethic things that I am sure we will get plenty of a chance to talk to. Well, go ahead. Give me a go. Let's, let's hear it now. Fine. Well, I, I'm just thinking of this whole thing, you know, about uh, the, the, wom the a woman, for example, who um, is pregnant and contracts uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. only the only way that she and or the baby will survive is if they remove the uterus. But if you remove the uterus, you're taking the child as well. Right. What do you do? Classic double effect analysis case. Great point, George. Excellent. So, in that situation, women have the cancerous or the gravid uterus, as they say in the classical terminology of this. First principle is this. Is the removal of the uterus in and of itself a morally evil act? No. Everyone agree? Yep. Anyone, anyone not sure about that? Okay, so right. You're right. It's not morally evil. Is the death of the baby in the womb, of the unborn. Is that of the unborn uh, intended for the removal of the uterus? No. Correct. Right. It's foreseen, but not intended. Oh. Okay. Does the woman's preservation of life, saving her life, proceed directly from the baby's death? No. Yes. No. Who says yes? No. I do. Okay, why do you say yes? I'm not sure. Father, would you repeat that again, please? I want to understand the concept completely. Okay, from the beginning or from the third principle? Oh, the question, the third the third issue. Does the prevent... Does... Okay, the third, third principle is the good effect cannot flow directly from the evil effect. Right. Got it. So in this case, the good effect is the woman's life is saved. The evil effect is the baby's death. Does the baby's death save the mother's life? Directly. No. No. Exactly. And directly is the key term there. You're right. So, first principle, the rule of the uterus is not morally wrong in and of itself. Second principle, the evil effect, death of the baby, is not intended. It's foreseen, but not intended. The third principle, the good effect must not flow from the evil effect. The baby's death does not directly lead the mom's life being saved. Fourth principle, proportionality. Is the mother's life being saved proportionate to the unforeseen death of her unborn? Yes. Correct, it is. In those cases, as tragic as they are, it is morally Catholic teaching that a, a woman in that situation can have the uterus removed. However, it gets dicey. Let's say a doctor says, look, you know, 
fine, but it's much easier for us. And it's safer for you if we if we do a removal of the baby today and the removal of the uterus tomorrow. No. Why? Because that's that's an abortion, essentially. It's the direct assault on the unborn. And that's an abortion. You're right, exactly right. So in those cases, the distinction is really important. Because one could say, look, you know, if it's gonna happen anyway, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. Because to directly assault or attack the unborn makes the issue a problem for, for morality. Now, it would be heroic if mom says, look, I'm gonna try to do it, try to, well, here's the question. Is the mother wrong? If she refuses to have the cancerous readers removed to save her child's life. Say that again, I'm sorry. Is the mother wrong to not remove the cancerous uterus to save her baby's life? No. Don't you say or anybody not sure? You're right. The answer is yes. He's not, he's not wanting to do that. It gets even more complicated in this case. Let's say the mother is five and a half months pregnant. So right at viability, right at the very, very edge of viability, where the chances of the baby surviving outside the mother are very, very slim. The mother would not be wrong to have labor-induced, deliver her baby naturally by cesarean section either way, in an incubator, the next four months, see what happens, hopefully they'll survive, and then have uterus removed the next day. That would be fine. Trying to save the baby and, and save her life as well. It's a very um, complicated situation, but that is the classic case. Uh, but again, it's very important. When you think about these cases, when we talk about what's called pater intentionem, which simply means outside the choice outside the intention of the agent. So the, the, the doctor sees the baby's life will be lost. He foresees it, but does not intend it. This is very different than the abortion issue where the baby is now removed beforehand. In that case, a direct abortion is willed and the direct abortion happens. It is impossible to say you don't will the baby's death. You're actually doing an act that causes directly the baby's death. The uterus being removed is the object. The death of the unborn is an unfortunate side effect of the uterus being removed. Go ahead, Peter. I was going to say, suppose it's a situation where the mother is pregnant, you know, she knows she's going to get birth, and she needs an operation, she has cancer, and she needs an operation and she doesn't have the operation, whether it be chemo or whatever, to treat the cancer, you know she's definitely going to die. Right. But she says, I don't want to have the chemo because it's going to kill my fetus. Mm-hmm. So she makes a decision to die. You know she's going to die. The doctor says there's no doubt about it. You're going to die if you don't have the chemo. But she takes makes that decision to save her child. Mm-hmm. And maybe because she's going to die anyway, like in three or four months or six months, because she has right. chemo. So in a way, she's committing suicide to the no. fact that she doesn't have the chemo? No. First of all, the, the case with the, with the baby, 
and she's saving her child's life by not having chemo or an operation which could cause the death, which will cause the death of her unborn. Secondly, so actually, and that's actually heroic in, her, in, 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 in that case. So it's not suicide because she's not directly choosing an action which will cause her to die. She's not saying, I'm going I'm to take medication to kill her, I'm going to jump over a bridge. She's choosing an act to save the life of somebody else in that circumstance, her baby in particular. And really any parent would, I think, choose their life being lost to save their child. So a mother, in that case, is actually doing what any mother with a baby who's outside of the womb would do. So it's actually an act of heroism. And in the case of St. John Amola, St. John Amola was pregnant with her baby and was told, if you do not take this medication to save your life, you'll die. If you take it, then you might die. And she refused the medication. Baby survived, and she died. It is canonized now, St. John Amola, because she chose her baby's life over her own. Which again, it's very, I mean, the husband's choice in all of this, and that's also a case, looking back with your husband, with your wife, it's very complicated in all cases. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a brutal decision to make but these things. Now, thank God, in Western medicine, in Western societies, a lot of these difficult moral questions, like the questions, are no longer applicable because you have a lot of things that can help to make it both end work in this case. But in parts of the global south, other parts of the world, they're still not at that point yet. And these decisions are still very much part of that reality. Any I just wanted to make to go back to my original question. So, yeah. therefore, based on everything we went through, mm-hmm. it would be all right for the mother to have her uterus removed. Correct. Thank you. Yep. Even in that case, the sterilization, which comes from that, would also not be wrong. Because she's doing it. I mean, if she if she were not pregnant, you would still do the surgery, of course, to have the, the uterus removed to um, save her life from the cancer, even though it renders her sterile. Because sterilization is not the choice there, it's the removal of the uterus. This is where the object, fellas, is so very important. Do you see how it's essential here? To know what's happening relative to reason. Removing the uterus to be able to remove that which is, gonna, which is diseased with the intention of saving the life of the mother. It's essential for us to know very intricately what the object is, which helps us then to make a proper moral adjudication of the act itself. So the, the kill, so so basically, the death of the child is a secondary effect. Right. It's, un, it's foreseen but not intended. Got it. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much. Sure. Anybody else? All right. So here's the deal. Normally we'd have a break. I'm not doing that over Zoom. All right. And also it's like 845, 850 almost. So we have this for almost two hours. I have a pretty good cover a lot of material tonight. I think we're at a pretty good point here. I'm sure you agree. Um, now Labor Day is next week. So we don't, we don't meet next Monday because it's Labor Day. We're going to be non, non-laboring on Labor Day, which is a good thing. Um, the reading assignment for next week can get right online. The reading assignment is a document. I'll write this down. You have the assignment. 
called The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality. The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, about 30, 33 pages long. They were typical counsel for the family, put the document out. So it's a good primer on our talk about chastity and sexual issues, which will we begin with we meet again in two weeks. So do this for Will tonight, me standing up, or do you prefer me sitting down like this talking to you? What would be, what would be better? This is a good night, do this. Yeah, this is you, good. What you comfortable? What are you comfortable with? I'm, I'm following. Anywhere good. you want, Father. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm golden here. I'm all right, you know? So, good. You look taller this way. Well, I mean, I, listen, I'm not larger than life, but, you know, I guess you could. <laughs> you know, what's that? You're younger than we are, too, so you can stand. A couple of years, you know. <laughs> Hopefully, well, consequences. But uh, <laughs> that's right. Very good. Good, good, good. So, if you have any questions or anything comes up in the course of the week, I have my email. You have my phone number on the Populi Magical page there. Don't be afraid to uh, contact me if anything comes up in the course of the week. And um, if that's good, we'll be end with the prayer and we'll call it a night. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good night, and see you in two weeks. Thank you. Have a good night. Wait a question, Ed. You have a question? I logged on late. So I was okay. just if you took attendance and marked. I did. You marked your present. Don't worry. I got you, David. Okay. And you know my wife from uh, Mary Ellen Leno from Maria Regina High School? Oh, sure I do. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. She's like, oh, I'm the father. So, yeah, that's my wife. So Good place. Good school. Yeah. Very good place. Wow. Good so, stuff. All right. Thanks, David. You See got it. Two weeks. Thank you. Good night, everybody. See you in two weeks. Good night.